Well, we're uh, in a series called Hurt. And we talked about the inevitability of hurt, how it's uh, inevitable. We are offense factories ourselves, and those who live around us are offense factories. We just, even when we don't try to hurt one another, we just do. Because we're, we're just not adequate. We can't do everything adequate. We can't remember everything we're supposed to remember. We can't be every place we would like to be. You cannot live your life uh, without letting someone down. That's just life. And then, of course, we have those who seem to be committed to hurting others. Those who are uh, seriously sociopathic, psychopathic, uh, just uh, seem to uh, find special delight in causing other people, people pain. Um, last week, we had a great message on forgiveness. And some came to the seminar last week. I know downtown, and I know there's already some stories of, of deliverance and change. Uh, I don't see Joy, uh, I think Joy's uh, out, of, out, of, out of state, but uh, Joy Johnson took the, the, the videotapes to prison, and th- there was already an incredible story of a, a lady in prison who, who responded immediately, and maybe later we'll tell you that story, let me let her tell it. Just a dramatic change in her life as she learned to forgive and practice the protocols of forgiveness. And we're going to be talking more about that. Today, I want to talk to you about the opportunity of hurt. I want to talk about the opportunity of forge. What if we could see the open doors of destiny and legacy more than the shut doors of loss and injustice created by our hurt? You know, for years, politicians, motivational speakers, and preachers have told us, and you've probably heard this somewhere along the line, that the two Chinese symbols for crisis are danger and opportunity. Uh, actually, it's, that's not true. Uh, in fact, I was going to use that illustration. I did a little research and found out that the, though the word for crisis are two symbols, one symbol does mean danger, the other symbol does not mean opportunity. Because opportunity speaks of a favorable uh, future, a favorable uh, situation that's been set up for you by this hurt. Hurt does not necessarily set up a favorable situation. It does not by itself create great opportunities for you. Actually, the other symbol that the Chinese use for crisis besides danger is, the, is a word that uh, linguistic experts tell us who know, understand Mandarin. It means beginning. Beginning. So... This is so. Why would I say that hurt creates opportunity? Because if you are willing to accept the new beginnings, God can turn your hurt into opportunity. God can do that for you. The God who does not cause all things causes all things to work together for good. Hurt is inevitable. But God is opportunistic. If you will let him, God will build the purpose of your future out of the pain of your past. If you will let him, God will build the purpose of your future out of the pain of your past. Now, I want you to have some background on the story of this great truth that we're going to build on today. Let me read to you I'm going to read to you seven chapters of Genesis, so just relax. 
I'm going to read you seven chapters of Genesis about the life of Joseph from the Twitter Bible. Yes, I have a copy downloaded in my Kindle app of the Twitter Bible. Every chapter of the Bible is summarized in 140 characters. So some of you never thought you could read the entire Bible. I got the Bible for you. And it's going to give us a chance to do a 30,000 feet flyover. So even if you've never, ever read the story of Joseph, you will now know the story of Joseph within about 45 seconds from now. Genesis 37. Genesis 37. Joseph was Jacob's favorite son. He had dreams and his brothers were jealous, so they sold him. He was bought by Potiphar in Egypt. Now we're going to jump to chapter 39. Potiphar put Joseph in charge of his house. His wife tried to seduce Joseph, then lied about it. So Potiphar, Potiphar put Joseph in prison. That's chapter 39. Chapter 40. Pharaoh put his cupbearer and baker in prison. Joseph interpreted their dreams. The cupbearer was restored, but the baker was hanged. Okay, chapter 41. Pharaoh had a dream and called for Joseph to interpret it. The dream predicted a famine. Pharaoh put Joseph in charge of all of Egypt. Chapter 42. Joseph's brothers went to Egypt to buy grain, but didn't recognize him. He kept Simeon in prison and sent the rest to fetch Benjamin. Chapter 43. When the grain ran out, Joseph's brothers went back to Egypt with Benjamin. Joseph invited them to his house and gave them a feast. Chapter 44. Joseph hid his cup in Benjamin's sack, then sent a steward after his brothers. Judah offered himself as a slave instead of Benjamin. Joseph told his brothers who he was. They were afraid, but he told them, God sent me here. His brothers went to fetch their father. So you have it. There's the story of the life of Joseph. Now in Genesis 50, after their father Jacob is gone, the brothers think, now Joseph has no more restraint. The curtain will get open now, and we're going to find out that we are done for, because they have no, he has no restraint to get vengeance and to kill us. And you've got to understand, this was an honor culture. And in an, in an honor culture, we don't really understand honor cultures in America, but in an honor culture, it is the ethical thing to do to take vengeance. It is considered stupid, almost unethical, not to take vengeance. You're not preserving your culture if you don't take vengeance. You're not preserving your culture from other enemy tribes who will see that you don't deal with, with wickedness and you don't deal with evil in a decisive manner. So other tribes will also attack you and take advantage of you if they don't see that you have the courage to take vengeance. Forgiveness, Forgiveness is foreign to us today, but it was even more foreign to an honor culture. So they knew... The right thing, they knew that justice would have to be done. But Joseph understood something that Dr. Hebel said last Sunday, and it's of all the things he said, it's a thing that I've been thinking about all week, that justice does not bring peace. Forgiveness brings peace. We see this with families who feel that they will get peace if they can see their loved ones murder or executed, and they watch the execution. And maybe they get this elusive thing we call closure. 
But do they really get deep inner peace? I don't think so. Genesis 50, though, the curtain gets open and we learn how an overcomer thinks. We learn how an overcomer thinks. Genesis 50. I'm not going to read this in the Twitter Bible. I'm going to read this in the regular Bible. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? So they sent word to Joseph saying, your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you're to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please to forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. When their message came to him, Joseph wept. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? This is very, very important. Because Joseph, a lot of us are here this morning and we're waiting on the perpetrator to come and ask our forgiveness. And then we would forgive. Then we would feel peace, we think then we would, it would all be better if the perpetrator, the person who hurt us, would ever acknowledge their hurt. But Joseph had already forgiven them. Joseph had already settled in his heart. He already had an understanding. So Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. In other words, because Joseph became the prime minister of Egypt, he was able to create a plan that saved the entire region from famine and also to save his family. Joseph understood what hung in the balance. I said Joseph understood what hung in the balance. At a conference the other day, some of us were at, Andy Stanley talked about not understanding what hangs in the balance. And a lot of us are making decisions in our lives because we do not know what hangs in the balance. In fact, we really cannot possibly understand all that hangs in the balance. That's why we have to make the right decision. Because out of the right decision, things that we could never imagine, things that our children and our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren will experience will come out of us making the right decisions in life, out of the making the wise decision, out of us practicing forgiveness and peace. We cannot possibly know all the good that God will do out of our great decisions. So he said, don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. Now I have a very difficult time seeing any redemptive purpose in being hurt or being offended, or having pain. Very difficult. Especially when that pain or that rejection comes from other people's choices. Especially when it comes from people that are often close to me, and, and, and people that I've trusted. At the end of this ordeal, though, Joseph was able to, able to conclude, my hurt created an, created an opportunity that benefited myself and others more than if it had never happened. My hurt created an opportunity that benefited myself and others more than if it had never happened. Uh, many, many years ago, uh, like it was 19, I believe 1987, because it was right before we came here, um, 
I really wanted to go back. We had pastured in Westville, Massachusetts, and I really wanted to go back to that area because we liked that area. We're used to that area. I really wanted to go back to that area. And, um, and, and we were going to build a church. And so I called the appropriate church authority to see if uh, we could get permission to do that. And uh, I'll never forget the words, the voice on the other end of the line who began to tell me, no, he didn't feel that would be wise. And then he said to me this. He said, Phil, you're just not a New England pastor. And I, I, I felt like uh, going through the phone and punching him in the throat. And I, uh, I, the word pompous came to mind. <laughs> A couple other words that I don't even say normally came to mind. <laughs> and, you know, that, that was uh, 30 years ago. And I, I look at our lives here. Because of that, we came, we came here. Not at, not at his direction. <laughs> Thank you. No, not in his direction, because remember, I, I wasn't a New England pastor. So he, not in his direction, but in spite of him, we came here. And I can't imagine not having spent our life here. I can't, I can't imagine that we didn't. This, this was a much better opportunity to be here. And not only that, you know, as, ma- as mad as that made me, as angry as that statement made me, after I calmed down, I realized he, there was some truth in what he said, that I needed to be more adaptable, that there were things I resisted, there were ways that I didn't adapt to cult- culturally New England because of where I came from. Um, so God, God used that. And many, I don't think we ever really talked about it, me and that guy, but, but we did talk. And we, we, in fact, I served, on a, uh, I served on a committee with him for uh, quite a while and uh, was able to put that behind me. Here's the thing about getting hurt by people, especially in my, my story is just so little league. In my, any of my stories of hurt really are little league stories. They're just pathetic compared to what I look around this room. And I know your stories, a lot of you, and, and some of you have some serious stuff you're dealing with. In fact, this is a hard series for you because it's, it's bringing up some really, really painful stuff uh, and I, I thought one of the victims of Harvey Weinstein spoke in the last few days and was interviewed with CNN, actress Catherine Kendall. And she said something that really stood out to me. She said, when people perpetrate against you, you are the one who feels the shame. You are the one who feels the shame. She went on to say, I've come to understand that when someone perpetrates against you, they put their shame on you. You don't know why you feel so bad. They did something to you. You have that creepy, slimed feeling that it's your fault somehow. That's true. And some of you in this room, and I know there are stories that you haven't even told me, but I know, I, I know enough stories of things that have happened to you that are so painful and so difficult. And I know what, what Catherine Kendall said was so true, that when someone perpetrates against you and they hurt you badly, you feel the shame, and a lot of times they don't seem to feel any shame, and that makes it more painful. But let me ask you a question today. If we just throw up our hands and say, sorry, it's hopeless, God can't do anything with my story, what good does that do you? 
What good does it do you just to tell you you have a right to be hurt? Is it going to really help you to simply assure you that you've earned the right to be a victim? How is that going to really help you if we don't challenge you to reframe your story? If we don't challenge you to retell your story to yourself and we don't challenge you to truly forgive the wounds, and, and that's another thing Dr. Hebel said last week, so we don't just forgive the person, we forgive the wound. If we don't challenge you to forgive the wound and reframe your story the way Joseph did, again, I ask you, what if we could see the open doors of opportunity opened up by our hurts more than the shut doors of injustice created by our hurt, like Joseph did? Paul said in, in the epistles, experience creates hope. What kind of experience? Well, read of his life, and a lot of it was hard experiences. I know in, in the cancer journey that I've been on, I glom onto people who've been through what I've been through. I glom onto people who survived and tell me their story. I, wanna, I, I heard, uh, uh, I think of you, Jim, when I think of, uh, always, when I think of Jerry Cook, I think of Jim Meisner in the next sentence. Jerry Cook is a uh, well-known, uh, he passed away now, but well-known uh, four-square pastor, which is Jim's uh, a past uh, from the Northwest. And uh, Jerry Cook said one day he'd had open-heart surgery and they'd cut him all up and everything. And a, a guy came to him and said, can I see your scars one day? And so he opened up his shirt and he took his hand and he ran his hand down the scars. And he said, thank you very much. I'm getting ready to have open-heart surgery and I just wanted to see what your scars look like. And for some of you here today who've been hurt really bad in life and you've been hiding and hiding and hiding, you know, I want you to stop hiding because some of us need to see your scars. We need to see what you overcame. We need to see what you had to go through to be where you are today. We need to see what you're victorious over. We need to know the door to your ministry is the pain you overcame. Amen? The door to your ministry is the pain you overcame. I don't know how much Joseph truly understood this, but he always seemed to be able to see beyond the injustice to the opportunity. The jealousy of Joseph's brothers got him thrown into a pit. They were so jealous of him one day, they threw him into a pit. And they, they really were going to kill him. But one of the brothers, I believe it was Reuben, who interceded and said, let's don't kill him. And so they, they threw him into a pit and they took this multicolored robe that his father had made for him to show his favor upon him, which really didn't seem to do Joseph any favor. And they took it and they dipped it in animal's blood and they took it back to their father and they said a wild animal killed him. But in reality, they sold Joseph to a group of slave traders who took him to Egypt. In the Bible, if we go to chapter Genesis chapter 39, it says, now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of the Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, brought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. Captain of the guard meant that he was in charge of the secret service, really. He was in charge of the secret service in Egypt. And uh, being in charge of the secret service in those days also included being, in, uh, being over the prison where political prisoners were taken. So a, a man of enormous authority. So 
here we go. Joseph gets this lucky, fortunate, whatever word you want to use, blessed turn of events that he's put into the household of one of the most powerful men in Egypt. And the Lord was with Joseph and he prospered and he lived in the house of the Egyptian master. See, Joseph knew how to take advantage of an opportunity. When his master saw that the Lord was with him and that everything that the Lord gave him success and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household and he entrusted his care, uh, to his care everything he owned. From the time he put him in charge of his household and of all that he owned, the Lord blessed all the household of the Egyptians because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. So he left in Joseph's care everything he had was in Joseph's charge. He did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate. That's an incredible story that this head of the Secret Service, this head of the Federal Law Enforcement Agency, which we have to, in America today, the very same kind of thing. And this, this person, because Joseph, because Joseph didn't develop a spirit of bitterness, because Joseph didn't, didn't d- d- develop a spirit of bitterness, and he didn't let what happened to him interfere with his peaceful relationship with God. He didn't let what his brothers had done to him. He didn't let the injustice that had happened to him. Now, if you're like me, you probably weren't as savvy as Joseph was. You probably didn't do that. You probably did it a bit differently. But I'm telling you today, it's not too late. You can recover your composure and you can leave this room today. In fact, we're going to pray for you when we're done with this sermon in a few minutes. We're going to lay hands on some of you and pray for you. And we're going to ask an an anointing of the future to come on you. We're going to ask that an anointing will come on your life and a vision to see that God's got you right where he wants you. Then another door of injustice emerges. Genesis chapter 39. So he left in Joseph's care everything he had with Joseph in charge. He did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate. Now Joseph was well built and handsome. And after a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, come to bed with me. But he refused. With me in charge, he told her, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns, he is entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? How many of us, when we get hurt, when we get hurt, it's an excuse to sin. When we get hurt and we go on our self-pity, when we start having feeling sorry for ourselves, we, we not only give in to temptation, we go looking for it. We go looking for temptation as a way to anesthetize our pain. But Joseph had so much integrity that he refuses. I mean, the casting couch has been around for a long time. <laughs> it didn't just get invented in the, in the 20th century, in the 21st century. So one day the Bible says, no, let's read this next verse. It's really important. And though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her, even to be with her. 
One day he went into the house to attend to his duties, and none of the household servants were inside. She caught him by his cloak and said, Come to bed with me. But he left his cloak in her hand and ran out of the, ran out of the house. When she saw that he had left his cloak in her hand and had run out of the house, she called her, ser- her household servants. Look, she said to him, this Hebrew has been brought to us to make sport of us. He came in here to sleep with me, but I screamed. And when he heard me scream for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. She kept his cloak beside her until his master came home. Then she told him the story. That Hebrew slave you brought to us came to us to make sport of me, but as soon as I screamed for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. When his master heard the story, his wife told him, saying, This is how your slave treated me. He burned with anger. Moses' master took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. Now, you would think, if if it were me or you, I would think, okay, here's my life. I go from being with my brothers and my father's favorite to a pit. Then I go from a pit to Potiphar's house. This woman gets after me, and I resist her, and I do the right thing, and I go from a pit to Potiphar's house to prison. I think my life's on a downward spiral. I don't think things are getting better. But Joseph realized something really important. He realized, from what he said later, the pain that put him in Potiphar's house and then put him into prison is the same pain that made him the prime minister of Egypt. See, if you will do, and I will do this correctly, yes, we will go from the pit to Potiphar's house to the prison to prime minister. That's what God wants to do with your life. Here's three things I want to tell you about God. And how he relates to pain. Now listen, when I tell you about what I think God is like, it doesn't mean I like it. doesn't mean I want him to be this way. See, my, my, a lot of people, I read a lot of people, I uh, have exchanges with quite a few people who will take something that they read in the Bible and they say, well, God did that. He couldn't be God. If he would do that. Well, sometimes I look at those passages and I feel the same way. I don't know. I don't know why God did that either. But I don't base my belief in God on whether he agrees with what I think he should do all the time. A God that I can comprehend and always explain is probably not God. No, I go way back before that to define my belief in God. My belief in God is based on certain foundational things that I've, I've witnessed and I've seen and I've read and I've experienced. So how God does his business is not mine to control. But if he can raise his son from the dead and he can raise Joseph from a prison to be prime minister... I like his results. I like his results. I don't always understand, agree, or like his methods. But I like his end results. And I look at many other people, organizations, many cultural uh, icons and cultural institutions whose way is a little more pleasant but I don't like their results. 
I don't like what they're getting out of what they're teaching. I don't like what they're producing. I like what God produces. I like what happens to a nation or a person who follows the counsel of Scripture. I like how families end up who follow the counsel of Scripture. I like how marriages end up who follow the counsel of Scripture. I like how churches end up who follow the counsel of Scripture. I like how people end up when they follow the counsel of Scripture. I never had anybody come to me and say, I followed all the counsel of Scripture and it really screwed me up. Now, sometimes you, you, you read what they thought was the Council of Scripture and they, they got it wrong, yeah. But I'm talking about in the midst of wise counsel. So let me tell you three things about God. Only God knows. There's things I believe about God. You may not believe these things about God. That's okay. I'm glad you're here today to hear a different worldview. Only God knows how to create lasting success and significance in a sinful world. The Scripture affirms the sinfulness of the human race. You know, you look at the look at the sordid story uh, that's been in the news the last few days. It's it's not a right or left thing, guys. It's not a Republican or a Democrat thing. It's the human heart. It, it, it's not even a thing of what people's philosophy is or the belief is. And I, I argue with atheists sometimes because they they act like we just get rid of religious beliefs, the world would be great. And I'm like, okay, where are your beliefs going to take us? But, but it doesn't really matter. It's not about beliefs. It's about the human heart. The Bible says that our hearts are desperately wicked. And no man can know it. No matter what political philosophy you preach. You can preach the political philosophy. And you, you can be a priest of political philosophy of feminism or, or, or anti-feminism. I don't care which way you go. Sin is in every camp. Sin is in every camp. It's in the pro progressive liberal camp. It's in the deeply conservative camp. Sin is in every camp. We're in a sinful, fallen, broken world. And, and we need to get right with God. We need to get our hearts clean before God. We need to repent of our sins. I know that's an old-fashioned concept, but I'm ready to start preaching it again. That we need to repent of our sins. We need to admit that we are sinners. Second thing I want to tell you that I believe about God is God's choice to save sinful humans rather than destroy them left him with no choice but to use pain as an ally to bring us into his purpose. Now God, here's what I believe, okay? That back in the Garden of Eden when we fell, that God could have stepped in and obliterated the human race. He could have gotten rid of the problem. We were the problem. Our hearts are the problem. That's why you find sin in political camps. You even find it in church leadership groups. Wherever you go. God could have solved the problem by getting, by hitting delete and starting over. But God said no. In fact, he made it very clear. There are no surprises. He said life's going to be painful. He told Adam and Eve right up front that's going to be, that this is going to be hard. So God, instead of obliterating us because he's a God of justice, he couldn't take back. He gave us the world and he didn't take it back. I said he gave us the world and he didn't take it back. 
The world still belongs to us. The world is still ours to run it any, any darn well we please, way we please. And we're running it, of course, we're running it into the ground, but he's given us authority. He said, I've, I've given you dominion over the earth. And he gave us dominion over the earth. So God has to work with our pain. God has to work with our injustices. God has to give us a moral, the freedom of our moral will that I can use these hands to bless you and hold you in a, in a loving way or I can use them to punch you. It's up to me. It's up to me. I can use these lips to speak words that encourage you and comfort you or I can use these lips to speak words that terrify you hurt you and abuse you. So God, instead of being the bully that many people think he is, he became the friend. He became, this is so powerful to me, he became the friend of sinners. He became the friend of sinners. And he said, I tell you what, I am going to redeem your sins. I'm going to redeem your pain Joseph, see, had a significant success in, in, in uh, he had a he had a significance and success dream as a boy, which probably most of us did, and probably that painful thing that happened was like the devil's way of just trying to crush your success and significance dream. Jacob sensed God's favor on his youngest son. That's why he probably made him that coat of many colors. But significance and success dreams never include ways and means dreams. The only way to fulfill your significance and success dream is to release your right to control the ways and means. When Job faced hurt, he said, the Lord knows the way that I take. Job said, the Lord, when he lost everything, he said, the Lord knows that when I take, that when I'm tried, I'll come forth as pure gold. Romans 8.32, God calls us all things to work together for good. It's in the spirit of understanding that Dottie Rambo, the late Dottie Rambo, wrote a song, I will weep no more. For the cross that he bore, I will glory in the cross. I will glory in the cross. It's in that same spirit that we take the pain in our life and instead of becoming our shame, it becomes our glory. I said instead of becoming our shame, being our shame, it becomes our glory. Third thing I want to tell you about God, what I believe about God and us is our decision to see setbacks and suffering as an integral part of our significance and success is critical to transforming our pain into purpose. Joseph could have used all his energies to focus on why did my brothers reject me? Some of you know this. You know this way of thinking. Why and what if? Why did my father set me up for rejection by advertising that I was his favorite? Why did Potiphar's wife lie? Why did God let all this happen? Or he could have done the what ifs. What if I hadn't worn the coat of many colors around my brothers? What if I hadn't shared my dream of significance with my brothers? See, he had shared this dream. Some of you know the story that, that he saw. It basically, I'll give you the sh short version. Basically saw his brothers all bowing before him. That didn't go over well. What if I just hadn't bothered to resist Potiphar's wife's advances? What? I mean, I'm an idiot. Why didn't I just go ahead and sleep with her? Joseph didn't ask what if, though. You never read him. Joseph didn't ask what if. He said, what now? What now? 
What opportunity do I have now? I'm in prison. So what can I do to live with excellence in prison? When he got to Potiphar's house, he said, what can I do to live with excellence in Potiphar's house? When he got to prison, what can I do to live with excellence in prison? And so it really made it easy and natural for him now to later to learn what can I do as excellence as the prime minister of Egypt. You learn excellence in the pit and you learn excellence in the prison. And if you learn excellence in the pit and the prison, you'll be able to have excellence in the prime minister's office. You get my point? Genesis 39, when this master heard the story of his wife, told him, saying, this is how your slave treated me. Hey, let, let's skip over that. I don't need to read that again. Some of us, we're talking about transforming our pain. Some of us know a man whose father and sister and mother committed suicide over a period of years. Some of us in this room, most of you don't. Recently offered to me, I, I began to talk to him about someone who I knew was suicidal. And he said, oh, I would love to talk to them. Here's a man whose three family members have committed suicide. But here's a man, there's a man who's letting God transform his pain into purpose. That's someone who's willing to let his injustice and hurt be transformed into an opportunity for a legacy and a destiny. Because I know that same man has told me, my family, I'm determined my family is going to be different. My children are going to have a different legacy than what I had. His resolution is so great. You must see yourself as the key to restoring the eternal legacy of your family. You must see yourself, every one of you, you must see yourself as returning the eternal legacy of God to your family and make the devil return everything he stole. Amen? We aid and abet the adversary in thwarting God's plan for our success and significance when we take matters into our own hands, when we try to anesthetize our pain with chemicals and, and distractions, and, or we try to power past our, our past with manipulation and bullying. And we, we, we do it that way. We win when we wake up to the courage to stay full of wonder and optimism and we determine to be excellent in whatever new chapter. Remember, remember the Chinese uh, 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 symbols? Crisis and beginning. It's about a crisis means you're getting ready to write a new chapter. Crisis means you're getting ready to live in a new place, at a new level. Because maybe the house that you lived in, you're like the people in California, your house is burned to the ground. You got to go start a new life somewhere else. Or you got to rebuild a house on that place, but you got to start again. It's so important. This is, the, this is the important truth today. If you are willing to start over, you're going to win. If you are willing to let God give you a new start, that is the only way. If Amen. If we're new creatures in Christ Jesus, we, we get a new start. In 1985, Marla Hansen was an ex-Assemblies ex of God girl uh, who moved to New York City. She attended Southwestern Assemblies of God College, and she went to work as a model in New York City until her landlord, whose sexual advances she had repeatedly spurned, tried to destroy her face with a beautiful with a razor. I'm going to show you a picture of Marla. Beautiful girl. Um, in that, that was back in 1985 that that happened. 
And I remember at the time, uh, Marla said something like this. She said, well, I can't be a fashion model anymore, but perhaps I can be a model of courage. And she faced a, a New York media that was brutal. That the New York media that tried to make her look like a, like a, just a promiscuous, uh, uh, no good person. And she faced a brutal New York media. She faced this accuser, she, uh, this person who had slashed her, her, her face and tried to destroy her. And, however, I saw her in a 2012 interview with Dr. Drew, and. She had, even though she had made those courageous statements in the beginning, she's like a lot of us. We tried that too. <laughs> we try to be courageous. But she made those courageous statements. Uh, she, did, she went through years of therapy in order to make peace of what had happened. And she said to Dr. Drew something that stood out to me. She said, it took me a long time to figure out you can't go back and get what you lost. You can't go back and get what you lost. Who you were is gone. And the sooner you let go of that and go ahead and build something new, the faster you recover. Now, I realize today you may not be able to hear this. And I empathize with you because I know with my pathetic little personal little league stories of rejection, I know it's hard for me to hear it. It's hard for God to get me to go from ex- exasperation to excellence. Also, I know there are periods in our life where weeping with those who weep is the best response. Why else would the Bible say, blessed are those who mourn, if we're not supposed to mourn our losses? There is a period of mourning that is appropriate. I find people, there are people who will not mourn. I don't find they're able to move on very good either. People who will not mourn or recognize their pain and their loss. I think it's really important to have a period of mourning. It's really important to say, what happened to me really stinks. And the person who did this to me is really wrong. I think it's really, really, really important. I think something's broken about your discernment. And perhaps your sensitivity if you can't mourn. However, I happen to agree with Dr. Hebel that forgiveness is not a process. But grieving is a process. Forgiveness is, you do it. Grieving, though, is a process. It's a choice. But there's a point. Let me hear me today. There's a point when it's time to stop grieving. It's time to stop mourning. It's time to take off the grave clothes, dry your tears, forgive your perpetrator, and go be excellent. Dry your tears, look in the mirror, and say, I'm not going to let that person define me anymore. I have become, you know, we talk about identity politics today. Well, I believe in identity faith. I identify with Jesus Christ on the cross. Take off the gloves, gray clothes, dry our tears. There's a point where your purpose must overrule your pain. 
You know what's terrifying to me? What's terrifying to me is to know I might get to the end of my life and realize I lacked the complete ability to be anything for anybody else because I was so preoccupied with my own wounds. I said what terrifies me is the thing of getting to the end of my life and knowing that I lacked the ability to be anything for anybody else because I was so preoccupied with my wounds. Joseph was always focused on being something good for somebody else, and that was his secret sauce. Right now, I want to pray for everybody. We're not going to have the prayer partners come and stand in front of you today. And we're not get, we don't have communion set up, and I did it on purpose because I want, I want some of you in this room. And we don't do this very often because we don't like to single people out. And we want to give you that an, an anonymity when it comes to prayer and identifying your spiritual condition. But today I want to do that differently because I think some of you need to, it would be illustrative of, of your courage to get out of your seat and come up here and there's a group of people that are going to come up and pray with you. The prayer partners and others are ready in this room to come and put a hand on your shoulder and pray for you. Right now, I want to pray for everybody in this place who would say, Pastor Phil, I'm ready to let my life be defined by my future opportunity instead of my past adversity. I'm ready. I, I, I'm going to forgive and I'm going to do more than that. I'm going to exploit the experience that others intended for evil and let God transform it into an opportunity for good. Would you let us pray with you today? Would you let God do something? The Bible says, you know what the Bible says? The Bible says, gives us this cool promise. He says, you will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. How many of you believe if I would walk up there, just maybe God would cause me to recover? If I would let people pray for me and I would admit that I'm in the struggle but I intend to overcome. I'm going to pray a quick prayer. When I'm done praying, there's no use waiting. There's no use deciding. Just decide. You're going to come up here and you're going to stand and people are going to pray with you. Father, in Jesus' name, in Jesus' name, I want the person and the people in this room that have are so needing healing from their hurt who need to get past their past. I want to see them touched and helped and healed and made every bit whole today. In the name of Jesus, would you come? Just slip out of your seat, come and stand.